Welcome to 2020 Politics War Room with James Carville. I'm Al Hunt. We're always proud to be partners with the Sign Institute at American University. We have special guests this week, James. But first, don't forget to subscribe to 2020 Politics War Room on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. Also, we'd love you to give us a review and be generous. How's your week going, James? About the same as last week. <laughs> there's, not a lot of, there's not a lot of day-to-day changes going on around here, I can tell you that. Yeah, the good thing is there are no downs. There also ain't very many ups. Right, it's, right. Uh, right. Uh, let's take a look at, at, at where we are with this catastrophic pandemic now, James. Over a million and a quarter COVID-19 cases in America, 75,000 deaths headed to 100,000 and more, double digits unemployment. At the same time, a number of states facing angry protests uh, are starting to open up restaurants, hair salons, shops, bowling alleys. Let me get you to react to what former Governor Chris Christie said. He said, hey, we can't leave this to the doctors, uh, the epi- uh, epidemiologist, oh God, I can never pronounce that word, Doctor, the Dr. Fauci's, and destroy the American economy. We may lose thousands of lives, he said, but it's like World War II when we sent young men off to die to save the world for a cause. What do you think? Well, first of all, this is what I think. The, the ability of governments to open or shut the economy is greatly overestimated. So the governor of Texas opens Texas. People are not going to movie theaters. They're not going to restaurants. I mean, are in, I mean, it's just human behavior. As long as, as, long as people feel threatened by this disease, they're going to shout in without the argument. I mean, now if you, you release. And so what's happened is all the places that were hit hard first, New York, New Orleans, and Detroit. All right. I'm, I'm in New Orleans, we're seeing the same thing there. The, the rates are going really down, the infection rates. Why? Because I know 10 people that have had it. In t- in, when you know people that have had it, you pay attention to it. And so where it's going to go next is where people don't pay attention to it. And, and that's the tragedy of this thing. You've got to try to anticipate where it goes. In New York, people got the message. I mean, they really get the message. But they're not getting the message in, you know, New Albany, Ohio. They're not getting the message in Shreveport. And, but they're going to get it. And, and this is the unfortunate thing about it, is so many people say, well, I don't know anybody that has it, but, but it's, it's all overblown. Or, you know, and I hate to say this, but you're going you're gonna to learn some people that are going to have it. And, and they think they can just throw the switch and turn the economy back on. It's not going to work like that. It doesn't work like that. You're going to get the, the worst of both worlds. You're not going to get a very good economy, and you're going to get a bucket load of new infections. Yeah, that's the problem. I mean, the World War II analogy, I think, is, is sophistry. I mean, it's uh, you know, sending uh, young men off to fight the Nazi threat You know, is quite different from saying people go to restaurants, go to hair salons, go to bowling alleys, uh, you know, where you may risk uh, you know, your own well-being uh, going there. Uh, it, the consumer, you're right, will determine this. And there are all sorts of difficult issues. I mean, I, you know, we talked to Drew Faust last week about universities. Yeah, maybe you can bring kids back in uh, late August. Do they all live in the kind of dormitories you did before? And what happens if there's a surge in October? Do you then send them back home again? And, and, and that's true of universities, but it's also true of any kind of businesses and small towns. 
you know, I wish there were an easy answer to this because I think the price we're paying is huge. We talk about the economic price and, and that's just colossal and people losing jobs and people losing faith. But things like when, an issue that I follow, which is child abuse. I mean, the cases of child abuse are just, they are, they are escalating and they are horrible. And, uh, you know, there's, I just don't think there's much we can do about it right now. So, so you know, it was this belief that Boris Johnson was a believer of this, that if you let it spread, you would build herd immunity. And that most of the cases were, if, if you were kind of young and healthy and you got it, it wouldn't be that big of an issue. Well, that's turned out to be anything but the case. And now we're starting to see that there are consequences beyond the actual disease. I mean, you have people having strokes, kidney failure, God knows what not. So you might be 37 years old and you get it, but you don't, we don't know what the long-term ramifications are for five, for your health five years from now, 10 years from now. And it's, and we also don't know, you know, how, how if, if we say the death rate is 1%, you know, I was reading something this morning. It, it, it looks like the, severe health implications are like 5%, which is a pretty damn big number. And, and that's what we know now. Now. Sweden was the model, uh, you know, for sort of the herd mentality to see if it works. And they've tried it and they claim some success. But next door is Norway. Uh, and Norway has, you know, significantly fewer cases uh, than Sweden. Now we'll see where their economies will be in six months. But boy, that's a, you know, I, I think there's very little evidence that uh, this is going to work and not come back. Well, I think what the Swedes are saying is if if we get more people that get it, then we'll build up immunity fast. I think that's the general theory behind it. It is. And you say, well, yes, but no, we, we are anticipating that we would have more cases because we have more immunity. Uh, it's, a, it's a risky bet. Yeah, it is because the doctors aren't sure that when you get uh, that immunity that, that that you really are immune forever. So you know who knows. Um, I, I I know we we uh, have made our views known on how the president is handling this, but I, James, I can't help but thinking. I read a column this week. You know he hadn't shown empathy. You don't expect him to show empathy. He's not an empathetic person. He doesn't really have personal feelings. I I buy all that. But in times of crisis, you know you really do need someone who tries to. Uh, give hope, give uh, inspire. I mean, FDR during the depression, George W. Bush after 9-11 with that bullhorn. This guy hasn't, there hasn't been one moment. It's just been insults, lies. Uh, it's just, uh, you know, it's just tragic. And now the whole issue, the whole Trump uh, uh, mantra, if you will, in this, you know what? It's all China, 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 China. I, I was reading an article by Jeffrey Sachs, who's in its old links. And, you know, China sent us the sequence of the gene, like, January the 3rd, right? The, the WHO, on the 18th, the Secretary of Health tried to get to tell Trump what was going on. The WHO declared the, 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 the virus a matter of international concern on January the 30th. Now, maybe China knew a lot of this in December, and didn't come forward. I do know they had like a, a Chinese New Year's was, was January the 14th. And they allowed mass gatherings in Wuhan. So I, I, I and, and then they said there was human. At first, the WHO gave a, a very guarded statement about human to human transmission. And 
But by, Jan by January 20th, we knew it was human-to-human -human transmission. We didn't do anything until mid-March. Now, uh, the Chinese probably knew something bad was going on from mid-December on and probably tried to cover it up. But what good would it We wouldn't have done anything anyway. What the hell would have done? They tried to do something before and it got nowhere. So they got to have every, every, they have to have an answer. And it's just China, China, China. And of course, and the thing was, if two studies, medical studies, saying that it was biological in nature, it probably came from a bat at a wet market. You have the five eyes, the intelligence services of the United States, the United Kingdom, New Zealand, Australia, and Canada, all saying the same thing. You got the director of national intelligence saying the same thing. And it doesn't matter. If you watch Fox, which I do, it all, the Chinese did it on purpose out of a lab they had. I mean, it's just insane. Yeah. But, you know, it's just the world we live in, Albert. It's the world we live in. Well, if you had his record, his being Trump's record on this, uh, you probably would have no choice but to try to find a scapegoat because that's what he always does anyway. So it has been shown. And as, as late as March 13th, he was praising um, uh, Xi Jinping. So, uh, you know, it's just, it is a political ploy. You know, uh, another update to keep within the family. Uh, you know, interesting pieces in the Times and Post this week about Jared Kushner. Jared Kushner said he was going to ride to the rescue, just like he did in the Middle East and just like he did on James Comey and a host of other issues. And he brought in all these hotshots from McKinsey and Boston Consulting, and they were going to deal with a supply chain problem and get medical supplies and and they, and they, to put it nicely, they screwed it up, James. They didn't know what they were doing, and they just got in the way of people who do know what they're doing. And I just, I mean, I and, I, and I'll tell you, as you look through all this money that's going out, look carefully at Jared Kushner uh, and who his associates are. I can't think of any White House aide over the last 50 years who has been as discredited continuously as the president's son-in-law. But look at the VIP list. They got a VIP list. So if you're, what's her name, Gina Ann Pereiro, you get, she calls and says, send this to the hospital I like. I mean, it's just a, it's a giant favor-granting operation. It's a scam, right. I mean, it's, it's just what it is. And, and yeah. you know, again, like I've said this before on the show, as a saying in the military, amateurs do tactics, professionals do logistics. The idea that somebody from McKinsey can come in and supplant a person whose entire career at FEMA is logistics is insane. It's insane. And, and you know, military officers spend the whole career studying this stuff. And of course it's where it is because they all, it's a money-making operation. Yeah, I mean, first of all, I wouldn't have, you know, I would have kept Jared Kushner out of anything. Uh, and secondly, uh, if you had to involve him, that's what he should have done. He should have used some of those um, uh, some of those supply officers from the military, people who had some knowledge of this. But again, if it's a money making operation, you're going to turn to people who know something about making money. Uh, and that's what he's done for that entire. I mean, I really love the fact that the great Republican criticism before the sexual assault case on Biden was his son. And his son seeking favors of all people to talk about that, given Jared, Ivanka, 
I mean, this is a this whole three years has been a money making proposition for them. Yeah, I mean, look, we could just drive ourselves nuts. I mean, it's all in everything, every behavior that he has had is consistent with who he is. He might be the single most genuine in, in terms of being able to predict exactly what he's going to do. There's no mystery there. He is going to lie. And he's going to, he's just going to lie. Everything he does is a lie. And of course, they're going to try to dispense favors and make money. That's all he does. Every action that you see that Donald Trump during this crisis is consistent with him all of his life. All of his life. Even selling his snake oil cures. I mean, remember what all of the snake oil of Trump University. I mean, everything about him is, is you know, selling people nothing and making money off of it. You haven't you haven't tried your your daily dose of Lysol yet today, James? Oh, I can't say. But that, that's again, he he's a it's all he does is lie and make stuff up. And he doesn't even have he's too stupid to have any self awareness of it. I mean, he's incapable of being embarrassed. It's it's amazing. It's amazing. It really is. He has no embarrassing quotient. He has no empathy quotient. Uh, I don't think he, you know, feels anything for any of these people. And uh, it's just, and, and, and that's different. That's not a, a, a partisan shot at him. Uh, for all of his failings, uh, Richard Nixon could have great empathy for people. Uh, and certainly Ronald Reagan could have great empathy for people, as could, you know, Bill Clinton, Barack Obama, the Bushes. This is the first president I've ever seen that has no empathy. He doesn't even care. He cares about one thing himself. But but he never has. He never has. Not in his entire life. And you know, it just it, you know, people who they are. And everybody at some level, come on, you kinda hoped it, I kinda hoped it. That was stupid. It was stupid. That you know, he'd he'd be Saint Paul and be, you know, knocked off his horse on the road to Damascus. James, we want to welcome two people who wow the likes of Carville and Hunt for a long time. Phil Donahue, the maestro of television talk shows for more than a quarter century, and Marlo Thomas, then and always that girl. Uh, James, I got an interesting new book on 40 successful marriages, including those of Mary Madeline and Judy Woodruff, who married two stiffs. First, Phil and Marlo, thank you so much for being with us. I hope you all are safe and doing well in New York. We sure are. Yeah, we've been uh, quarantined now for about uh, 27 years, <laughs> but I I learn a lot just watching my wife work the phones, and uh, I'm impressed. I mean, she is she's a go getter. Phil, I'm not going to feel sorry for you for being quarantined with Marlo Thomas, but uh, in any let me ask you too about this book: 40 marriages that, that work. Tell us what makes a marriage work. Well, you know uh, what. It was hardly a a big deal to f- discover this. I think that I think it's a very big deal what you discovered. Well, we knew though, didn't we? That marriages last if the people involved in the union really want it to last. That they, they don't. That they don't look for an escape route. You know that they're not looking for the when things get tough they don't run away and. 
and I think that certainly is true in in Judy and Al's marriage, and 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 James and Mary, who don't agree on a lot of things, but also on people like Kira Sedgwick and Kevin Bacon, who lost all their money to Bernie Madoff, all their money, thirty years of saving of savings, and people like Jamie Lee Curtis, who who had a cocaine habit. I mean, any any of those things could have made people say, "That's it. I don't want to deal with this." But instead, they held hands and they went through the fire together. And so when Phil said, "Well, it's not that big a deal to realize it," it's a huge deal to realize it. It sounds simple, but if you want it to last, you got to work on it to make it last. And some people went to couples therapy, like um, like Ron Howard and Cheryl That's what Howard. I said. Yeah. yeah, and and. Uh, and what's his name, Neil uh, Patrick Harrison, David Burka, they went through couples therapy. Brian Cranston and Robin Dearden, they went through couples therapy. So if you really want it to work, as Phil right. started to say, then you work on making it work. Well, also some of these people, in, in reading your book, um, Phil and Marlowe, some of these people, they, they, they did. They, during tough times, they stuck together. Some of them started tough. We think of them as the rich and famous. Alan Alda was driving a cab when he married Arlene. Right. Uh, so it wasn't like people had it, you know, people were in Fat City uh, in the beginning. And that really probably was a very important um, learning experience for them as they started. Right. And, and uh, you know what impressed me about the Aldas? He flew home every Friday night, you know, on the red eye from. L.A. to New Jersey during uh, match. Yeah, to be during match to be home. I mean, well, who loves you, babe? I mean, that's a that's a wonderful. It was uh, a tremendous sacrifice that they all made to invest in what Alan had dreamt of having, which was a real career. And what I thought was great about many of those marriages, uh, Alan told us that for nine years he never made any money as an actor, just as a cab driver and a doorman. Billy Crystal was doing stand-up for 10 years, making no money, making $4,000 a year with babies. And uh, those two women supplemented the income, Arlene and Janice Crystal, and never said to their spouses, as some spouses might, they never said, why don't you get a real job? They believed in them. They stuck behind them. And they said, you go for it. We believe in you. That is the kind of, you can't, you can never walk away from a team like that. That that's that marriage is is really you know in, in gold. It's it's in steel. I want the husband of Mary Madeline to uh, weigh in on this. So I, I'm up get out of the marriage thing for just a second and try to draw on your experience, which is probably more than anybody else. So Bill Gates calls calls the two of you and says, "Look, Warren Buffett and I just bought up." an hour of television, nine Eastern on every network, every cable thing, every internet or whatever. We, we want to do an hour show to help unite America. What, in, we, we, you know, we, given all your experience, what are some of your suggestions of how we can do that? I, I, what I would like Gates and Buffett to do with their genius and their money is to figure out how we can get a, a have an election that's real. 
how can we know as we go put our votes down that the Russians aren't going to take it away from us, that somebody isn't going to keep uh, the blacks or the poor people or whoever else or the elderly from voting. So to me, the most important thing that these brilliant rich men can do is invest their brains and their money in us getting a real honest to God American democratic vote. That's what I want to know. On paper with lots of evidence and uh, um, a substantial amount of of uh, of, un of uh, what we can see as the record of the vote yeah i mean we don't have a democracy if we don't if we don't have a, a an election that we can count on my god you know we have gone all over the world helping other countries get the vote and standing there with our militia to be sure they can get a vote. And we don't know in our own country if our vote is real or not. I, I, that to me, there, other than the coronavirus, there is nothing more important at this moment than us getting a vote that, that's real. So uh, together, how many years in show business have the two of you had? I mean, it's got to be more than we can imagine. <laughs> more years than we should have had. Uh, I've been an actress uh, professionally paid as an actress since 1962 and you've been a, a long way longer than that you were a, a, on the radio well i was <laughs> i was a reporter in adrian michigan i was uh i must have looked 12 years old but i could stop the mayor in the hallway of city hall because i had this microphone so it was my first exposure to the power of the media and uh, also to how easy it was to get it wrong. So that was an early baptism for me in journalism. And I was very grateful for it. It served me well throughout my years. Uh, so what year did you start? 19, actually, I started in, uh, I would say 19... Uh, 60 probably, right? Yeah, so something like that. Yeah, after you graduated from college. I graduated from college in 1957. And so I that's was... that's about it, 1960. About that. Yeah, what did I think? So that's, a, that's, over, that's, a, that's about 120 years. Phil, if you could interview anyone for one of your legendary talk shows today, who would you want to interview and what would you want to talk about? Well, I'd want to interview Donald Trump. I think he is... I mean, he's huge. <laughs> We're going to have more books on this administration than on Lincoln. I <laughs> honestly believe that. This is a fabulous story. Uh, and one of the dangers of this is that it's blowing everything else off the radar. Um, you know, what, what else is happening that we don't know about because of Trump, Trump, Trump? All the time, Trump, Trump, Trump. But then, then you want to have Trump too, you said. I did. And, you know, <laughs> so, you know, I, in a way, I, I, I understand it. Yeah. I mean, why let, you know, if you, you, if know, what, you can what, get Trump, you'll get an audience. And, and, that, and, and that's what they want. What, what do you, if you interviewed him, what would you want to know about him? What would you want to know from him? I want to know uh, where are his tax returns. <laughs> Uh, I mean, he's, he's pretty easy, really. There's a lot of things we want to know about Donald Trump. Right. I mean, uh, how did he get, how did this happen? <laughs> well, he can't tell you. Uh, well, that's true. 
James, James, if you were Phil's producer, what would you tell him to ask? Your physical appearance tells me that you're a human being. But in terms of any human quality that most of us have, from empathy to any other thing, you don't seem to possess it. How did, how did you get to this point where you're leading the country through a terrible time and you have no empathy with anyone? How, how did you build up that defense? I mean, most, that's hard. I mean, Nixon, I mean, most everybody at some level, even bad people, you know, have some, some empathy. I, I don't see, I don't see the, the human quality of that ever coming out of him. And I don't know how he got to that point. Well, how, would you put, how would you, James, how would you, uh, as an interviewer, of which you are a pretty good one, how, what would be the question you would ask President Trump to understand that quality? Well, I would probably go out a little bit differently and say that, you know, we are, you know, traditionally when we've been in times of crisis, you know, world wars, depressions, recessions, we've always at some point been united. We are in the midst of this horribly divided. What do you think you can do pushing forward to try to, to try to deal with this or anything like that? I would come at him a little bit oblique, you know, and I, I obviously the statistics up, but in, and this is what is so distressing to me. It, it, and I'm sure it's distressing to, to, to both of you. It's a goddamn virus. It's not political. It's not political. Yeah. No, no, it's not. You know what? Uh, uh, if I could just, speaking of political, you, you said something in your interview to us that I have been repeating to people that I found uh, so interesting. When, when we told people we were going to interview you and Mary, they said, oh, my God, I can't wait to hear what they have to say. They don't agree on anything. How in the hell are they married? And you said something uh, so fascinating. You said, we just don't agree on politics. But we have a whole life outside of politics. We have our kids. We have our family. We have our hobbies. We have our hiking. We have our home. We have our friends. We have barbecues. We have a whole life. He said, you look at us and think all we do is politics. That's what we do for a living. He said, that's like looking at an athlete and saying, wow, he can really hit the ball. But that's not all he is. He's got a whole other set of situations in his life. Um, and I just thought that I had never thought of that, of what, what, about looking at a couple uh, that are completely different, as you guys seem to be, politically, politically and then realize that that doesn't, that's just what you do for a living. That was the best answer. I think you ought to put that everywhere because people don't understand you guys have a great marriage the the way you talk about each other i mean your wife said to us he is my total package what a thing to say that's just so sexy and loving and romantic i was very touched by that so you know uh it's just interesting politics don't it's not really the the only way in which we define our personalities and and our coupledoms and that was it's fascinating to me. Oh, well, thank you. I mean, you know, one of the things is I, I didn't become James Carville until I was 48. So this, I, I became well-known late in life, which is like you, you guys were well-known 
you know, for, for a long time before. And you're right, it, when, people, when, when people see you do one thing, it's hard for them to place you in a context outside of that. And I, I appreciate that you like to answer so much. It, 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 it means a lot to me. So I'll, I'll take it and thank you. Yeah. Well, it's, a, it's, a, it's an insight that we have to bring as we decide that we know who people are. I mean, Phil and I aren't even sure we know who each other is after all this time. And I think that's the best thing in the world. We're being, being in quarantine. We are learning more about each other than we've learned in a long time. We, we've been, we were just talking about this last night. We have we have become more accepting of each other's different personalities. Phil is a very cool, laid back guy. I am not cool or laid back ever, maybe when I'm asleep. But the rest of the time I'm on top of it, whatever the heck it is. It's a very, those are very different personalities and it's worked for us because we don't panic at the same time. I don't know who it was that said, a good marriage means that the two people don't go crazy at the same time. We don't go crazy at the same time. That's that's a very big thing. Um, and we're noticing it more as we're alone all the time here. We're having three meals a day, which we never have. We always, unless we're in Barbados. We I'm never. helping with the wash. That's a big deal. Yeah, that's a, well, I mean, I, we, I mean. Full, I'm helping. I didn't say I was doing well, it all. Well, no, I mean, full disclosure, we don't do the laundry. We have a nice housekeeper who does all that. So now all of a sudden we had to figure out which was the washer and which was the dryer. And it was like a loose show here most of the days. But, but we've also been much more tolerant, much more accepting of the fact that um, we're very different people. And, I, and one of the things that we learn a lot uh, from everyone is, is that a good marriage accommodates the differences. It's not that you compromise. It's not that you change. You just accommodate the other person. You let the other person be who they are. Judy Vior said a great thing. She said, he's never going to be you and you're never going to be him. So you better learn to live with the fact that this is a completely different person and love them for that. And we're learning that more. And <laughs> the longer we stick together in the, in the quarantine, the more we're going to become accepting. Well, and your marriage, I think, Phil, is what? 40 years in two weeks? Us, right? You guys, you and Judy got married in April of 1980, as I recall. And we we're did. made. So, we did. I mean, don't you find that that you, you and Judy are learning about each other all the time? Well, less so than you all because she's spending, she's broadcasting from here, from our library. So she is, she's, she's getting ready for a broadcast every day. And so we see each other a little bit more than usual, which is nice. Uh, and, uh, but, uh, you know, it, it's still a pretty busy work at home uh, schedule for her. But no, it's been, there's been a lot of really good things uh, in this. Let me, let me ask you one. I want to ask you know, one political question to Marlo, if I may, because you're a longtime feminist. Uh, you're also, I think uh, it's safe to say a pretty strong Democrat. What's your take on these charges against Joe Biden? I don't know enough. I really don't know enough. I, I, I don't know. I, you know, let, let's see it. I, I, it it's, I, I, I don't want to be ever in the position of saying that I don't believe a woman or a man. I, you know, I, I think you have to give a benefit of the doubt 
to each person. I want to hear the story. I would never pass judgment from afar. But, and I think we're doing a little bit too much of that. We need to step back. Let's hear it all. And then let's let's decide. I mean, what happened to Bill Clinton should never happen to anybody. You know, and I think that we, 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 we ran after him and ruined his family and all of this because he, he did something he shouldn't have done in his personal life. You know, I don't know. I, I think we have to step back, find out what the truth is. When you look back, if you go back now a thousand years and look back at the Bill Clinton situation, you have to say to yourself, was that really our business to disrupt this whole nation, stop the, the democracy from working so we could look up the dress and in the in the minds of these people i mean i i'm I'm just uh maybe i'm just more privacy uh driven than that but for this particular situation which is very important because we're right at an election let's know what it is let's get all the facts out and hear it yeah i went to the uh believe it or not i was i was a guest of the white house it had nothing to do with me it was about Marlowe. She received the Medal of Freedom. So like a good husband, I went along. And I'm standing there next to the long table with the hors d'oeuvres and the, the people in the white coats. And I turned around and bingo, right in my face was Joe Biden. And I just think that's his, that's the way he operates. Yeah. I don't think it's anything you know, uh, to be ashamed of, but he probably did, was misunderstood with that woman. So easy does it now. I mean, um, you know, uh, he, he's being friendly. That's his way. And he was, he was all over us that day, hugging us and holding my hand and kissing Phil on the cheek. I mean, this is who he is. But again, we can't, say, you know, I can't, we can't pass judgment on anybody without, about, without a good hearing. Um, and he has a nice marriage, certainly. Yeah. He's married to a terrific woman. James, any final thoughts for Phil Marlowe? Sure. And I want to go to Marlowe's dad here for a second. Uh, my niece has successfully been treated at, at St. Jude's for childhood leukemia, but a couple of days ago, and the Andy Griffin show is like on for three hours now. <laughs> on one of the yeah. TV land or something. And I saw the show opening in the bird. And it was really, it was so relevant. Anybody has a chance, you can pull it up on your computer. It's about taking responsibility. And I mean, the story is really beautiful. And you're sitting here and you're just so sad that this is a man that takes responsibility for nothing. I mean, it, it's really a remarkable piece of art, I think. And it is a really, really relevant piece of art. People should just pull it up on their computer and look at that and just mourn for the country we used to have. And hopefully we'll get back. Hopefully we'll get back. Well, you know, Taking responsibility is exactly what each of us has to do, whether it's our marriage, our work, you know, how we feel about voting, what we feel about this country. Taking responsibility is key. It's exactly the point of what of what we were what we've been talking about. 
you know, you have to take responsibility for your position in your marriage and you have to take responsibility for your position as a citizen in this country. So I think that's a, a great way to even end our conversation that you're bringing up is that we take responsibility. We can't make other people take responsibility. They either do or they don't. But we, each one of us, has to take responsibility. And that's where we are in our country now, each right. one of us. And I've noticed in that uh, the more people complain, the less likely it is that they have voted. So, uh, you know, if, if you don't use it, you lose it. And far too many Americans fail to vote. And it's especially dramatic in the younger ages. Yeah. When people become adults and are legally authorized or permitted to vote, that's the lowest turnout of any demographic. But you can understand it. I mean, we've been, uh, the older people have been voting a long time and the world is a mess. So they're figuring what's voting got to do with anything. I mean, I, I, that's a, you know, what we went through with, with the Vietnam War. What good is the government? They said, let's take to the streets and change it ourselves. I keep waiting for that to be a surge from the foundation of our country of people coming forward and saying, okay, let's make this happen ourselves. And uh, we're so close to an election that we should be able to fire people up for that. Well, yeah, anybody who thinks that uh, it doesn't matter, uh, uh, that your vote doesn't matter, doesn't matter who we elect, uh, just look at the last uh, three and a half years. And I think that's a, uh, uh, you know, a stinging refutation of that. But also, but also how close some of those elections were. You know, you don't want to be, you don't want to be from a district where the person you wanted to win lost by, you know, 300 votes, you know, you've just got to get out there. Yeah, but but that's uh, and that's on yeah. both sides. I, I mean, that's Republicans and Democrats. Everybody has to get out and be heard. Every everybody. When I see our president walk out on the stage with a tie, you know, that looks like a kitchen tablecloth, and applauding himself, and I see all those cameras go up from the first four rows, high above the head, to take the picture. Not an empty seat in the largest venue available after the largest airplane takes him to this different city. I, I want to know who are these people with their hand in the air? Who are these people who wait all night to get a seat in the gymnasium? Well, maybe you three guys should go interview those people. Let's well, find out who they are. Well, actually, that's what I'm sort of indicating that I wish mainstream media would do more of. I think we've got you know, an Oval Office um, fixation. And I, I learned what um, jingoism means. Jingoism means, to really simplify it, perhaps beyond its meaning, exaggerated patriotism. You know, we're so... the the. The, mean nationalism? Yeah, yeah um, and about the country. That mm. We're the last remaining superpower. We're the most powerful nation on earth. On and on it goes. Well, you know, after a while, you know, it's, a, it's no wonder we're not getting an honest look at uh, what's, what's, uh, what's happening in the country. 
I don't think anybody thinks we're that that we're as strong right now. You're not, you know, that you're talking about how we appear to others, their, their perception of us. When in fact, what James is saying, and I think you've said often to me, we're crumbling from within. That's the strength of a country. If we're crumbling from within, it doesn't even matter if we're the biggest superpower, because eventually we won't be a super anything if we fold from within. And I, and, and that's that's the part that that's scary. We're we're gonna have to let you to settle this 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 mild debate uh, in your shelter at home. The only uh, this has been fabulous. I can't thank you enough. I'm only sorry that I didn't get to ask Phil how he got that great hair. But uh, we'll we'll turn to that next time. And uh, I <laughs> want his mother. His mother has the same head of hair. Anybody out there, Phil Donahue and Marlo Thomas, what makes a marriage last? Forty celebrated couples read it. It really is a great read. Marlo and Phil, thanks and be safe. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you guys. Bye bye. James, that was that was fun. That really was. Let me ask you, uh, we're going to try to do this most weeks. Sheltered in the Shenandoah, what are you doing watching, reading this week? Well, I read that Ann Applebaum piece that you put me on, which was fascinating because everything that she writes is fascinating. Uh, I, I'm reading, uh, looking at what I'm doing. I got the new, the new Churchill, The Splendid and the Vile. I got Sean McMeekin, The Russian Revolution, A New History and Daniel Kagan on the origin of war. Uh, and I watch a lot of movies over and over, particularly Downfall, because it has such a happy ending. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I like to watch Andy Griffin show in the afternoon. I really don't watch a lot of TV. I don't, I don't know why, I'm nothing against it. I, I keep Fox on in my kitchen, and it's all China all the time. And uh, I watch a lot of documentaries. And I watch LSU and Clemson, and I watch the Nationals and the Brewers and the Nationals and the Dodgers and the Nationals and the Astros and the Nationals and the Cardinals. I, I, a lot of reruns. You, you know, several friends who listened to this podcast last week said, hey, Carville talked about the books he's reading, and all you cited uh, was old movies and newspapers. So I, I want to point out that I still watch old movies this week, James. Uh, Rear Window is a winner. You see Grace Kelly smoking a cigarette. Uh, and uh, I, But I'm also, uh, into, as I was a little bit last week, but into more books. I have the Churchill book, too. I really am just barely starting it. I read Phil and Marlowe's book. I read actually a soon-to-be-published diaries of one of the most thoughtful politicians I ever knew, a congressman you probably never, never heard of in the 70s, 80s, named Barbara Conable. And a fascinating new book uh, on the North Korean dictator, Kim Jong-un, by the former CIA Korean analyst, Young Pak. We got to get her on this program, James. She is really good. And as always, I rely on the Post, the Times, and others like Atlantic and Vox. And I want to tell you, you put me on this wonderful anti-Trump Republican site called Bulwark. And boy, are they tough and are they good. I, that, those guys know how to fight. The Democrats do not know how to fight. And there, there's a lot to learn. And I mean, they go after Trump, I mean, like hard and creatively. They, they, there's a lot to learn there. I, I'm just really big on we don't fight right. You know, and I'm big, big on like you got to be like a pirate ship. And the stuff that they do is creative. It's accurate. 
it, it uses, you know, it, it, it's just good. And these guys are good. And democratic strategists could learn a lot from them, yeah. a whole lot. It's called the bulwark, uh, and it really is um, uh, worth uh, worth checking. Um, you know, you know. One more thing. Last week, I I praised the Last Dance, the Michael Jordan HBO series, and I watched five and six, and it is it it it's marvelous. I am bothered, however, because Ken Burns pointed out this week that they gave Michael veto power over whatever was in there. Um, and as much as I enjoyed, am enjoying the documentary, I, I think that really is a you know a journalistic uh, uh, faux pas by uh, by ESPN. But you know, you know who's that, who else is good is this guy Charlie Sykes. I just I'd, I'd heard of him and just figured he was a right wing Milwaukee, Wisconsin, he, right? Yeah, I, I never you know just had heard of him that he's an influential guy and you know thought he was like Rush Limbaugh. You know, Mark Levin or something. He's anything but. He's a very thoughtful guy. He really is. I was surprised. No, he's a very was a very close friend of Paul Ryan's and supporter. And uh, after the first year of the Trump uh, administration, he wrote a beautiful column saying, "Paul, there is more to life than tax cuts." Uh, and uh, I, I'm not sure he and Ryan have ever made up. But Charlie Sykes is really worth reading. We won't we won't agree with him, James, ninety percent of the time. But he's honest. And- and and he's and he's and he's really uh, he's thoughtful. You know, it's like this. We agree on the you know, like Churchill. To be honest, you know, he had some some real screw ups in his life. But one thing he was, he was right about the big thing. Right. You he, know, he, he was wrong about a lot of things prior to 1940. He was wrong about a lot of things after 1945. But for those five years, no one was, along with FDR, no one was more right, and that's when it counted. Yeah, and you read the book, and it's just so, you know, Eric Larson is, is in the Garden of Beast, one of my favorite history books ever. But he just he just weaves such a narrative. And the part of stuff, but when you get into it, there's a lot of good gossip in there, too. Oh, wow. <laughs> well, another great another great writer about that uh, period was is, is Lynn Olson, uh, former uh, Washington reporter. She's written some great books on uh, on that era in World War II, and, and there's some gossip in those, too. But listen, this has been... Um, we like gossip. We do. We love gossip. I hope the show uh, is able to, to convey some good gossip. James, It's uh, it's been a fun day, and I'm glad you're doing well, and I look forward to seeing you and talking to you next week. All right, man. Good deal. Uh, everybody be safe out there, and please subscribe and review the podcast on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. For James, I'm Al Hunt again. We'll talk to you next week. Stay safe.